Uh, we're reading Isaiah chapter 66. We're reading all the way um, from start to finish. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit, and who tremble at my word. But whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a person, and whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood, and whoever burns memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. They have chosen their own ways, and they delight in their abominations. So I also will choose harsh treatment for them and will bring on them what they dread. For when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, no one listened. They did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your own people who hate you and exclude you because of my name have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. Yet they will be put to shame. Hear that uproar from the city. Hear that noise from the temple. It is the sound of the Lord repaying his enemies all they deserve. Before she goes into labor, she gives birth. Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. Who has ever heard of such things? Who has ever seen things like this? Can a country be born in a day? Or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet, no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. Do I bring to the moment of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Do I close up the womb when I bring to delivery, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice greatly with her, all you who mourn over her. For you will nurse and be satisfied at her comforting breasts. You will drink deeply and delight in her overflowing abundance. For this is what the Lord says. I will extend peace to her like a river, and the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried on her arm, and dandled on her knees. As a mother comforts her child, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart will rejoice, and you will flourish like grass, The hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but his fury will be shown to his foes. See, the Lord is coming with fire, and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all people, and many will be those slain by the Lord. Those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one who is among those who eats the flesh of pigs, rats, and other unclean things, they will meet their end together with the one they follow, declares the Lord. And I, because of what they have planned and done, am about to come and gather the people of all nations and languages, and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, And I will send some of those who survived to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians, 
famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece, and to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory, they will come, proclaim my glory among the nations. And they will bring all your people from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord. On horses, in chariots and wagons, on mules and camels, says the Lord. They will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord in ceremonially clean vessels. And I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. And they will be loathsome to all mankind. Have you ever felt unworthy? Have you ever felt overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Perhaps a feeling of shame that that weighs you down because of things you've done? Uh, Maybe things that others know about, maybe things that no one knows about. Have you ever had that feeling? Uh, Earlier this week, I was chatting to a a mate from another church, and and he was almost in tears at the weight of shame that he was feeling over something that he'd done. He so desperately wished he could take back, and he felt so unworthy of God's love. Have you ever felt like that? Tonight we're looking at Isaiah 66, the final chapter of this long and glorious book from the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah 66 is written to people who were themselves feeling unworthy, uh, feeling overwhelmed by their sin and feeling like perhaps they'd been abandoned by God. So as we look at what God says to them, it has a lot to say to us as well. Uh, But to make sense of what God's saying to them, uh, it'll be helpful for us to think about where this chapter fits in the bigger picture of Isaiah. Uh, The prophet Isaiah lived about 700 years before Jesus, and the first half of the book, Isaiah 1 to 39, is addressed to God's people living in Isaiah's own lifetime. But in the second half of the book, it's addressed to God's people in the future, as they're in exile and then returning from Babylon and settling back in Jerusalem. So the second half of Isaiah is future-facing, but it's not just looking at the short-term future of God's people as they return from exile, it also points further into the future as well. So for example, over the past uh, weeks, we've seen that parts of Isaiah point uh, 700 years ahead uh, to the coming of Jesus, like we saw in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, or Isaiah 61 that Tyler preached on a few weeks ago, the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And in fact, if you were with us last Sunday at our combined Easter service, we looked at Isaiah 65, where God promises, looking way into the future, promises a new heavens and a new earth when Jesus comes again. So Isaiah has a pretty big scope. It's dealing both with people way back then, but also way into the distant future, which raises the question, well, where exactly does Isaiah 66 fit? What's exactly going on in this chapter? Well, to figure that out, we're going to ask three simple questions about this passage that will take us through and help us come to grips with it. The first one is, who is this passage addressed to? 
Who's Isaiah actually speaking to? Well, have a look in your Bibles with me at verse 5, where we find out. Check it out, verse 5. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your own people who hate you and exclude you because of my name have said, Oh, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. Yet they will be put to shame. So notice that this is being addressed to those who tremble at God's word. They're faithful to God. They take his word seriously. But also notice that these faithful people are hated and excluded because of God's name. You know, that their faithfulness to God is actually causing them to be looked down upon by the people around them. But who is it that hates them? Is it the people from the surrounding nations who who don't recognize the one true God? No, what does verse 5 say? It says, it's their own people who hate them. It's fellow Israelites who are looking down on them. So Isaiah 66 is written to the faithful minority in Israel who are hated and excluded by their own people because of God's name, because they're standing firm to the Lord. Okay, so that's who it's written to, but that raises the next critical question. What does it actually say to them? What message does God have for this faithful minority who are being hated and excluded because of his name? Well, Isaiah 66 is overwhelmingly a message of comfort. And it comforts them with the promise of two realities. First, it comforts them with the promise that God has a glorious future in store for them. Uh, Have a look in your Bibles with me where we see this in verses 10 to 14. God says, Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice greatly with her, all you who mourn over her. For you'll nurse and be satisfied at her comforting breasts. You'll drink deeply and delight in her overflowing abundance. For this is what the Lord says, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried on her arm and be dandled on her knees. As a mother comforts her children, so I will comfort you, and you'll be comforted over Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart will rejoice and you'll flourish like grass. Now, I don't know if you notice, but that language of comfort keeps coming up in those verses, doesn't it? God's comforting his faithful remnant with the promise that Jerusalem is going to be restored and blessed and given peace and wealth. But it's important to understand that this isn't referring to the earthly city of Jerusalem in our world today. When it talks about Jerusalem being restored, because you know, sometimes people get uh, all caught up in prophecies like this and wrongly think that it's about the modern nation state of Israel and rebuilding Jerusalem like we've got to rebuild that physical temple before Jesus comes back. This is sometimes what's known as Zionism. Uh, It takes prophecies from places like Isaiah about Jerusalem And it looks for their fulfillment not in Isaiah's own day or the the exiles returning from Babylon. Uh, But if we zoom out, uh, it looks for their fulfillment in 1948 in the the re-establishment of the modern nation state of Israel. Now, there's all kind of problems with this view and we won't go into all of them now. But one big problem is that it misses what Isaiah is actually saying. Isaiah isn't talking about the earthly Jerusalem in this current world. He's talking about a new Jerusalem in a new creation that God is going to bring about 
not in 1948, but at the end of the age. And we know this for a few reasons. Uh, Firstly, in context, Isaiah 65 has already told us that this is pointing forward to the new creation. If you've got a physical Bible there, you can flip back forward to Isaiah 65 and have a look at verse 17. These two chapters are tightly connected, where God says, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. So notice that it's talking about Jerusalem, but it's talking about God creating a new Jerusalem as part of the new heavens and new earth that he's going to create. That's the first big thing to notice because that sets up uh, what's happening in Isaiah 66. But notice that even in Isaiah 66, it uses this same language as well. Have a look at Isaiah 66 and verse 22. God says, As the new heavens and new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. So this isn't referring to the the earthly Jerusalem in this world and the modern nation state of Israel. No, it's referring to the new Jerusalem. The new creation that God's going to bring about at the end of this age. And when's this going to happen? Well, Jesus tells us we don't know a time or a date, and we shouldn't spend our time trying to guess. But we do know that it's going to happen when Jesus returns at his second coming. That, when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, is when we're going to live with God in his new Jerusalem and his new creation. That is the glorious eternal future that God is comforting his people with. In Isaiah 66. And this exact promise and this language from Isaiah 65 and 66 is picked up in the New Testament in Revelation 21 to describe our eternal home. Uh, Check it out. Revelation 21 says this. Notice that it's quoting Isaiah. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Now, a couple of years ago, um, I visited Israel and it was pretty cool. But let me tell you, it's nothing like this. This is not talking about the modern nation state of Israel. This This is a new order that God is going to bring about at the end of time. It's a far more glorious future than we can even picture. That is the, is the future that God is comforting his people with. You might be hated and excluded now, but better is coming. Better is in store. So that's the first promise that God comforts his people with. There's a glorious future in store. But the second is the promise that those who hate and exclude and persecute them will be judged and will be repaid. Have a look in your Bibles with me where we see this in verses 15 to 17. God says, 
I see the Lord is coming with fire and his chariots are like a whirlwind and he will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all people and many will be those slain by the Lord. Those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one who is among them, who eats the flesh of pigs, rats and other unclean things, they will meet their end together with the one they follow, declares the Lord. Now, these are quite confronting images. The Lord coming with fire, bringing down his anger with fury. Many will be those slain by the Lord. It's quite full on, isn't it? I don't know if you noticed this in the reading, but the end of the passage, it's even more confronting. I mean, check out verse 24. It says, And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The the fire that burns them will not be quenched, and they'll be loathsome to all mankind. It's pretty confronting, isn't it? What are we to make of a passage like this? I mean, how could a loving God say something like this? Well, the reason that we feel that question so intensely is that from our modern 21st century Western bubble, we tend to view judgment and love as somehow opposed to each other. But the critical thing for us to understand is that God's love and God's judgment are not intention, but on the contrary, they're actually two sides of the same coin. Salvation and judgment go hand in hand. To save the oppressed means to bring judgment on the oppressors. So God's love and his justice are not somehow opposed to each other, like if God was a bit more loving, then he wouldn't have to be so just. Or if he was more just then, oh, he wouldn't be as loving. No, on the contrary, it's because God is loving. It's because he's loving that he's just. Rebecca McLaughlin, in her excellent book, Confronting Christianity, puts it this way. God's love and God's judgment cannot be pulled apart. Think of the anger you feel when you see school children shot, women raped, or people beaten because of the colour of their skin. Think of your anger at the slave trade, the Holocaust, and global sex trafficking. When you analyze that anger, its root is love. It's because we care for victims of injustice that we are angered when they are mistreated. And the more we love, the more easily our anger is kindled. We rush to defend our children from the smallest attack because we love them so much. Anyone who harms them inspires our fury. And that's so true. You know, it's the closer you are to someone, the more you feel the pain and the anger at when they're mistreated. You know, I remember the first time that uh, one of my kids came home from kindy and found out that they'd been pushed over by another kid. And, you know, Alex had to like hold me back. I just wanted to go there and knock this little kid out, this little four-year-old who had, who had pushed our kid. And maybe my anger is disproportionate <laughs> But God's isn't. God loves far more deeply than we do. You know, we live in a world that is filled with so much injustice. And if God didn't care about that, if he just shrugged his shoulders and swept it under the carpet, that wouldn't be a loving God. That would be an indifferent and uncaring God. But it's precisely because God loves so deeply, far more deeply than you or I could imagine, that his fury at injustice runs far hotter than ours. 
both injustice on a horizontal level, the ways that we as humans fail to treat other people the way they deserve as image bearers of God, but also injustice on a vertical level, the way that we as humans fail to treat God the way he deserves, as one who deserves all glory and honor. That's the greatest injustice there is. And it's because God is loving that he cares about injustice and promises on the final day that he will make all things right. So friends, God's judgment is not something to be embarrassed about. It's a good thing. And I know that's sometimes harder for us in our comfortable Western bubble to feel, but I was chatting to a friend of mine who comes from a country where he has friends and family who've been persecuted and even killed because they're Christians. And when he looks at passages like this that promise judgment on those who do wrong, he finds it so comforting. For people who are hated and excluded like those in Isaiah 66, for those who are mistreated and oppressed, or for any of us, and there'll be many of us who have faced great injustice, God's judgment is good news. God cares about what you've faced and he will make it right. God's justice is confronting, but it is deeply good. Okay, so we've seen that Isaiah 66 comforts God's faithful remnant with two truths. A glorious future in store for them and judgment on those who hate them. And that means that there are two destinations, two eternal futures that someone can end up in. Either eternal glory or judgment. And that leads to a final question. What determines someone's eternal future? What is it that decides whether or not someone faces eternal glory on the one hand or judgment on the other? Well, Isaiah 66 tells us that what matters, what what makes the difference, what God's looking for, is not outward religion, but inward contrition. Have a look in your Bibles with me where we see this in verses 1 to 3. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things and so they came into being, declares the Lord? These are the ones I look on with favour. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. But whoever sacrifices a bull... It's like one who kills a person. Whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood. And whoever burns memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. Now, here's the thing. In Isaiah's day, someone might have been tempted to think, look, I know what will make God happy. I'll go to the temple heaps and I'll make loads of sacrifices. A bull here, a lamb there, a grain offering sprinkled on top, that's going to make God absolutely stoked with me. But God is saying, no, that's not how it works. Verse 1, God says, heaven is my throne. I don't live in a temple built by human hands. I don't need things from you guys. And verse 3, sacrifices and outward religion without inner heart change are not pleasing to me, God says. Even in the Old Testament, it was never about that. The one who sacrifices a bull, which is an outward religious act, they're like a murderer. So if it's not outward religion that God looks on with favor, then what is it? 
Well, verse 2 tells us, these are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Now, the word uh, contrite is a word that we don't often use, uh, but it means remorseful. To be contrite uh, is to be remorseful over our sin and feel the weight of it. To, To tremble before God as we feel the depths of our sin, that's what contrition is. It's the same thing uh, that Jesus is talking about when he says in the New Testament, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That phrase, the the poor in spirit, it's those who recognize their own spiritual poverty, their spiritual bankruptcy, who come to God and say, I've got nothing to offer. I'm completely unworthy. I bring nothing to the table in this transaction, God. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Or to be humble and contrite in spirit. And tremble at God's word. But those who feel comfortable, who feel confident and, or even proud of their own uh, moral behavior. Oh yeah, I'm a pretty decent person. I go to the temple and offer sacrifices back then or today maybe. Oh yeah, I go to church and I do, I do Christian things. I even serve at church maybe. I feel great. I've got nothing to worry about. To those who feel comfortable, Isaiah 66 is a warning. It's a great comfort to those who feel unworthy, but a great warning to those who feel comfortable and self-confident. It says that if we're in that situation, we're heading on a very dangerous path towards a very dangerous future. Do you get this parable that Jesus tells in Luke 18 about a really religious guy, a Pharisee, and a really big sinner, a tax collector? This is what Jesus says in Luke 18. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, very religious person, big on the temple. And the other, a tax collector, a big sinner, a rotten guy. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you that this man, this sinful tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, when Jesus says that it's the tax collector who went home justified before God, well, to be justified is to be declared righteous or declared innocent. It's to be forgiven and in right standing with God. So what was it? Why was he justified? Was it because of his great works of outer religion? No, it was because of his inner contrition, wasn't it? Have mercy on me, a sinner. What pleases God is not outward religion, but inner contrition. But we've got to ask at this point, I mean, with the parable that Jesus is saying here in Luke 18, as well as what we're seeing in Isaiah 66, I mean, 
isn't this unjust? How can God simply let people like this sinful tax collector off the hook without any punishment or justice being done? I mean, not long ago, we talked about how God's justice and His love are inextricably connected. And that because God is loving, He won't just sweep injustice and sin under the carpet. But isn't that exactly what God is doing with the tax collector? Isn't that exactly what God's doing if He just forgives someone simply for being contrite and remorseful with no justice being paid? Where's the justice in that? Well, that is the beauty of the cross. The cross of Jesus is the reason that God can freely forgive the poor in spirit and yet still be just. Because in Jesus' death on the cross, he took on himself the just punishment for sin. He willingly drank the cup of God's wrath and fury against sin, facing that righteous anger himself, so that justice could be done, while God could at the same time still forgive sinners like us and justify us, declare us right and innocent. This is how Romans 3 puts it. It says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his justice Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand, including in Isaiah's day, he'd left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. But he did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The cross is the reason that it's possible for God to both be just, bringing judgment on sin, And at the same time, also be the one who justifies the unworthy, who simply are contrite and remorseful and put their faith in Jesus. You know, we saw earlier that that judgment and salvation are two sides of the same coin. And nowhere is that more clearly seen than at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it's at the cross where God's judgment against sin was poured out. And it's at that same cross where God accomplished salvation for all who would trust in him. We saw earlier that God's justice and his love are inextricably connected. And nowhere is that more clearly seen than at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it's at the cross where God's justice is demonstrated. And he showed how seriously he takes the injustices and sin in this world. But it was on that same cross that the greatest act of love has ever been seen when Jesus laid down his life to take that penalty for us. That is why it's possible for God to justify the tax collector and yet still be just. That is why it's possible for God to look with favour on those who are humble and contrite in spirit and yet still be a God of justice. So have you ever felt unworthy? Have you ever felt overwhelmed by your sin? Perhaps a feeling of shame that weighs you down because of things you've done that maybe others know about or maybe things that no one knows about. Well, if that's you, if you've ever felt crushed by the weight of your sin, what Isaiah 66 shows us 
And what Jesus shows us is that if you're feeling unworthy and weighed down by your sin, then you are exactly the kind of person that God looks on with favour. He's pleased with you. You're exactly the kind of person that he longs to draw near and forgive. You don't have to earn it. Jesus has done that for you. God looks down at us and he says, these are the ones I look on with favour. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. So if you're here tonight and you're feeling the weight of your guilt, my prayer throughout this week is that this passage would be a comfort and an encouragement to you. But perhaps you're here tonight and you don't resonate with that at all. Maybe you don't feel the weight of your sin and you think, Nah, actually, don't know what you're talking about, Ben. I'm all G. Maybe some other people, yeah, they're pretty messed up, but, but I reckon I'm pretty decent. If that's you, then Isaiah 66 is not a comfort, but a very strong warning. Because we've seen that in Isaiah 66, there are two possible eternal futures, and everyone is either heading to one or the other. It's either eternal glory or it's facing the fury of the justice of God's judgment. And so if you're feeling comfortable in your own moral standing, then this passage is a warning that you're on a dangerous path. If that's you, please turn to Christ. Look to him. Humble before yourself before him, tremble at his word, and he will draw near to you. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Let's pray together that God would humble us before him so that we would receive his grace and allow him to lift us up. Heavenly Father, we praise you as a God of justice and love. We praise you that you are good and holy and righteous, a God who cares about injustice and wrongdoing and won't just sweep it under the carpet. And yet, Father, we know that even as we long for others to face justice, we would never be able to face it ourselves. So we thank you that you've provided Jesus for us so that justice could be done and yet we could be justified and declared righteous in your sight. Father, help us to feel the weight of our sin and to be humbled by it. But instead of being crushed by it, may it drive us to Jesus, who invites us to come to him so that he will take that burden from our shoulders. Father, help us to be humble but confident before you, knowing that we're loved and knowing that we're forgiven. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.